Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just coming up to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Thank you so much, Craig. Chris, Chris, this week... More fight backs against mining by Indigenous communities. And this time it's in Peru in South America. And I'll be speaking with Thomas McDonough, a Bolivian Democracy Centre person and also part of the International Allies. Reaction to the massacre of children in Yemen. I'll be speaking with Cathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Gene Ethics Report with Bob Phelps. Another prominent Australian facing deportation from the Philippines and Peter Murphy has that story. And part one of the history of Nauru and leading up to the Pacific Islands Forum next month. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when there was a scramble among our rapidly growing prison populations and those facing trial to join the rapidly growing to determine for themselves if that they have been rapidly growing in prison for or charged with is a crime or simply dishonourable, a dishonourable non-crime. Tick the appropriate box and tell us if you should go to jail at all following that non-misnomer, the nab your money bank big supremo Andrew Thor burn your money declaring the bank and himself innocent because the bank had acted dishonourably but in no way there was no possibility ripping off customers big time, charging for doing absolutely nothing, sweeping their wealth off them by thinking up lots of fun, fun, fun fees like the walking past the door fee, the walking in the door fee, the charging a fee fee was criminal. Look, I concede we may have acted dishonourably, but it is ludicrous to suggest ripping off big time, charging for doing nothing is criminal, Andrew told us. Uh, Excuse me just a moment, yes, Richard? Uh, Sir, we've discovered we have inadvertently paid interest on a customer's account. What? What? Despite our clear policy that we charge interest, but under no circumstance pay interest. Look, get this customer's detail. This is outright theft. I I want this matter referred to the police immediately for charges to be laid. By by charges, I don't mean what we do. I mean what they do. Uh, Yes, sir, sir, immediately. Now, now, sorry about that. As I was saying, there is no way our actions could be deemed to be criminal, and might I say, if by some remote chance they were considered criminal, there is no way any individual could be held responsible, uh, other than perhaps a couple of young tellers. Thank goodness Andrew has as consolation in this most distressing time for him his obscenely giant salary. An even more comforting consolation that there's not the slightest chance he will join those real criminals in the rapidly growing incarcerated populations. 
Last week we mentioned the celebration of our 25th million two true blue Aussie person, with big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull providing the solution for how to provide the exponential energy growth for all this without interrupting the headlong rush to the end of the world, the miracle cure known as the negative, so called because of the negative attitude of the caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit party's usual suspect fossils, for whom the guarantee that good clean coal will continue to destroy the planet for as long as the planet sputters on isn't good enough. The commitment to evil renewables providing 26% of energy by the end of the 22nd century is far, far too generous. Far, far too generous. Their spokesperson, former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, was all reason. That's 26% stolen from the great coal giants who generate uh, generate pollution, tiny. Let me finish. Generate jobs and growth and wealth for the whole community. That shows how selfish and anti-true blue Aussie these long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron, black armband fanatics are. Black armband fanatics are. And your coal lobby is anything but fanatical. Exactly, anything but. We are attempting to bring reason and balance to our energy policy, reason and balance to our energy mix. Now, so yes, Tiny, you argue we need a range of sources in the energy mix. What would be a proper percentage for coal, for instance? Look, we want a proper balance, so 100% would not be unreasonable, not be unreasonable, and other unreliable when the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow sources could fill the remainder. Uh, that's uh, that's 0%, is it? That sounds about right, but, yeah, it sounds about right. Uh, but how will that address climate change and the extreme weather attacking the whole planet? Crap. Why waste time trying to address crap? Trying to address crap. As a by-the-by, we know Tiny is a passionate advocate of nuclear power, if only we could get away with it. If it wasn't for the interfering long-haired commie brigade, and he wouldn't be advocating it if he thought for one second there was a problem. Over and above, say, 200,000 years or so working out what to do with the waste or addressing the odd health problems it may generate. So at least to generate something. Because therefore, I was surprised during the extreme heat across Europe last week at a news report that France had closed down a number of nuclear power plants because of the extreme heat. Whoops, <laughs> what's that mean, I thought? We don't have to wait 200,000 years. Does this mean it can't meet baseload requirements when the sun does shine and the wind does blow? Oh, and Malcolm assures us we'll celebrate the end of the planet with cheaper energy prices, go out with money in our kicks. That's the G bit of negative, guarantee. And I'm sure we're all pretty sure what the guarantee will guarantee, leading us to express our gratitude to Catherine Tunner Profits, supremo of fossil retailer Energy Profits True Blue Aussie, proud owner of the Lawn Power Station, True Blue Aussie's number one contributor to the end of the planet, who has just announced record profits, a threefold increase on last year. Isn't that wonderful? The first of the energy retail giants to announce stratospheric profits. And our gratitude to Catherine. 
Catherine is so caring, so empathetic with the customers who kicked in to provide that threefold profit. Families and small businesses around the country have had a hard time keeping the lights on and their energy costs under control, she expressed her concern, which might have sounded a touch more sincere if she hadn't just announced a threefold multi-trillion profit from those having a hard time. But she won't have to worry about those struggling with her exorbitant prices once the G bit of negative kicks in. Malcolm guarantees we'll save heaps, like the massive savings we were promised when energy was, was wrenched from the bloated inefficient hand of the public sector and handed to the super efficient lean mean hand of the private sector, to people like Catherine. And we all recall the windfall benefits we gained from that good for all of us process. And the bloated hand must have been especially inefficient because the super-efficient hand at our property by then-state big supremo Jeff Footinmouth, his economic guru Alan Stockdill et al., haven't stopped putting up the prices ever since, when all they wanted to do was save us money. So clearly the problem goes back to the public sector, whose inefficiencies they're still trying to overcome. Yet... There are cynics, ideological fanatics, who claim all the problems Malcolm, his fossils minister, Josh Pride, M. Icebergs, Tiny with his balanced views and the team are tackling, emanate from privatising the public assets. Doesn't it show how irrational ideological fanaticism can be? Any wonder it upsets poor Tiny. The most important news in all the world, all over, Friday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, the pejorative Dan government wanting to remove the non-facts news from our loop train stations. Loopy news in the loop. Fix the trains, not the news. All over P1, and we can be sure Lord Rupert's self-interest as owner of non-facts and sky-lies news had nothing to do with this being the biggest news scoop in the whole world, proving his biased and selective in what it wants us to know rival the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, no longer Fairfax morning paper, didn't even mention the story, didn't mention the biggest story in the whole world. The pejorative Dan government interfering in freedom of speech as Lord Rupert's usual suspect columnist informed us as part of the sensational coverage. And all because Lord Rupert's pay TV news sources interviewed fascist Blair hate speech Cottrell and didn't think it worth challenging his fascism, which says heaps for the interviewer, the first Indigenous Supremo of the Northern Territory. He's got to get some sort of solidarity award. If Blair hate speech got his way, the interviewer would be one of the first to face the firing squad. Still, it's really, really surprising a fascist wasn't challenged on a Lord Rupert program. Then again, the no longer fail facts bit didn't take long to reflect itself. Also Friday, Trubler was a capitalist review, big P3 earth-shattering story. The channel that made no longer fail facts, no longer fail facts, exciting, exciting lineup to present us with the tennis this summer that channel has won the big contract for. Not that the new owner would influence content in any way, it's just a great story. I'm sure we all couldn't wait to find out. Finally, 
Back to the good news for the planet. The long-haired, commie, greenie lots want great corporate Adani the planet charged over a bit of pollution to the barrier reef during a cyclone last year when it got permission to discharge all this pollution onto the reef. The goody-goody's claiming the pollution was even more polluted than is permitted, which is encouraging in itself uh, permitting pollution on the barrier reef. Well, Adani, the planet has to do something with it and can't be expected to treat it itself or, heaven forbid, not actually create it. But Adani, the planet, says it didn't pollute more than its normal pollute. A strong argument. And surely its watertight, pun only slightly intended, watertight defence would be the not-so-bad pollution doesn't matter because thanks to our coal mine, the reef will disappear with the rest of the planet anyway. Nothing like a cheer-up afternoon. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And you can say good morning to Mr Kevin Healy tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock here at 3CR with um, the program City Limits. And he has some guests and he has co-presenters and all sorts of things. And he also has a pot of green tea, I believe it is. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. For the past couple of years there has been a focus on El Salvador and the case brought by Oceana Gold against the government for hampering its future potential profits, an increasingly common practice through free trade agreements. After a seven-year million-dollar largely secretive court battle, the court in the end unexpectedly awarded the El Salvadorian government $8 million to partially cover legal fees and costs. Today we're talking about a similar but extreme case, this one in Peru, South America, where indigenous communities are fighting to defend their basic reserves against a Canadian mining company, where a leader of the indigenous Aymara community and a human rights defender has been sentenced to seven years in jail and fined over half a million dollars. I'm speaking now with Thomas McDonough from the Democracy Centre and the International Allies. Thomas, before we look at the specific case of the Aymara community and their opposition to the Santa Ana mining project in Peru, could you explain in broad terms the work of the two organisations and your role? Okay, so my name is Thomas. Um, I'm a researcher at the Democracy Centre. We are a research and campaigning organization based primarily in Bolivia, also with staff in the UK and and also in the US. So the center has been around for, for 25 years, kind of evolved and changed over, over the years from the early days of being focused on immigrant rights issues and kind of solidarity with immigrant communities in the United States to working in 
in Bolivia at the time of what became known as the Water War in Bolivia. So the Water War in Cochabamba was another quite significant uh, campaign that the Democracy Center was involved in. It was like a multinational corporation from uh, the United States, from California, called Bechtel, um, involved in the privatization, like a push to privatize the water of the city of Cochabamba. And the people rose up and the government was forced to to go back on its on its policy of water privatization. And, and as a result of all of that, the corporation brought a legal case against the Bolivian government um, using what's known as the investor arbitration tribunal system. It's a system of international courts, basically, that allows multinational corporations to sue governments whenever there are policy changes that affect their interests in a country. So the Democracy Center was involved in an international campaign to pressure, basically to, to pressure the corporation in a number of different ways uh, and to highlight the injustices of this system. It was, a, it was a campaign that was successful and resulted in the Bechtel dropping the case against Bolivia and settling for like a two, two Boliviano symbolic payment. And that was the, the beginning of a whole chapter in the center of looking at kind of the impacts of these, the institutions of of globalization for want of a better term. So the international financial institutions, multinational corporations and foreign governments on, on people's struggles in, in Bolivia and Latin America. The Democracy Center published a book then called Dignity and Defiance, Bolivia's Challenge to Globalization, kind of closing that, that chapter of research. On, and then for the last few years, we've been particularly focused on, on climate change and looking at the impacts of climate change in the region, and in particular, how to provide support and solidarity to grassroots communities affected by extractive projects, uh, mining and oil and gas and different types of extractive industry projects. That's what we're really focused on now. We've always kind of had this position as being a regional organization in Latin America, but also having a connection to international networks. Uh, and looking to apply pressure internationally to raise awareness and to apply pressure through campaigning activities on institutions, multinational corporations, governments in the north. So that's where the international, the connection to the international allies comes in. The international allies is a, an alliance of civil society groups that was working around the case, around a case in El Salvador, where the people there were also struggling around the issue of mining and water. And there was a multinational corporation involved again. It was first uh, Canadian capital and then uh, Canadian and Australian capital. The company was first called Pacific Rim and then Oceanic Gold. So because of those connections to the north and to Australia, both Australian and North American groups and other international actors established this network of solidarity organizations working on El Salvador and the whole issue of mining and uh, the right to water in El Salvador and how to best support the struggle of the people there. The Democracy Center was involved. We weren't kind of leading that at all. We were kind of involved in a much more marginal way. We were very focused on this, the broader system of investor state dispute settlement and these trade agreements that allow multinational corporations to sue governments. And this case in El Salvador was really emblematic because it was similar to the case in Bolivia. The people there were kind of saying no to mining and forced the government to 
to also like to introduce policy that reflected that. And so the corporations uh, affected were able to bring these international uh, investor state lawsuits. So the Pacific Rim and then Oceanic Gold, that then became Oceanic Gold, brought one against El Salvador in the context of resistance to mining. So the communities were saying no to mining. The government eventually also said no to mining. It was gold mining. In this case, the corporation was able to use the system to sue the, the government of El Salvador for hundreds of millions of dollars. And like these cases, like uh, they reach into the stratosphere, you know, it's like hundreds of millions and, and now billions of dollars uh, that governments can be on the hook for if they introduce policy that affects the interests of multinational corporations. So the International Allies, as I said, is, it was a network of international organizations trying to support, uh, offer support and solidarity to the struggle in El Salvador. And and did so very effectively, and El Salvador became the first country in the world to introduce a, a blanket ban on all open pit uh, mining. There's a lot of work still to be done in El Salvador on the whole issue of water, in particular there's a push to privatise water still going on there. That's a little bit of background on the Democracy Centre in broad strokes and the connection to international allies and the work in El Salvador. Great. Well, as with the dispute in El Salvador it's got its roots back a number of times with this one in Peru in Punto. Can you explain or tell us when the the indigenous people first learnt about what was planned for their area? Puno is the name of the region it's in the south of Peru. Peru's southern border is like Chile and Bolivia and to the southeast there's a big lake called Lake Titicaca. It's a really huge lake, it's like a small sea but it's at like 4,000 metres altitude and it's shared between uh, Bolivia and Peru. Nestled in the corner between the lake and the the border are a series of uh, Aymara indigenous communities. So this whole region of the the south of Peru, it's a mountain region, it's the central Andes, and there are uh, very uh, large indigenous populations there, Quechua and Aymara indigenous populations. Like as in the rest of Latin America, you know, there's a history of uh, extractivism and mining that goes back to colonial times. And Bolivia was one of the countries that became famous kind of for the amount of uh, natural resources extracted and shipped back to Europe by the, the Spanish kind of imperial power. There's a Uruguayan author called Eduardo Galeano who uh, uses the image of you could literally build a bridge between South America and Spain with the amount of silver that was taken out of the mines and sent back to Spain for the uh, development of Europe. And you could build a second one with the bones of the indigenous people who died taking it out. They're vivid images, but I think they serve to, you know, represent, like to kind of contextualize the history of, of the region and the nature of the relationship between Latin America and Europe and the process of colonialization or colonialism that has kind of evolved like that power relation has evolved and shifted and now what we have are multinational corporations that represent northern power and that in regions like Bolivia and Peru are kind of up to the same thing just in a different form you know just figuring out the best way to get in you know get access to the natural resources come what may cash in you know and ship them and sell them in in the international markets 
but those corporations are uh, predominantly northern, you know, North American, European, and then in recent years, Chinese. That's just a little bit of background to the case in Puno. And what was the reaction of the people when they found out what was planned for their area? In, in the case of Puno and the Santa Ana mine, news started to filter through around 2008-2009 that uh, there were plans afoot to move forward with a, a huge silver mine in a predominantly agricultural area of, of this region of Puno. Uh, so people started to ask questions, people started to challenge the local authorities, try to get more information. They were being met uh, with a lot of indifference and a lot of manipulation. And the corporation involved is a corporation called Bear Creek uh, from Canada. What local people have said, there was a lot of kind of manipulation in the in the process of, you know, community meetings and this kind of thing. And there was... They were finding it very hard to get access to to clear information. So people mobilized and began to, like, whenever they had exhausted these different avenues of their local authorities and, and the company trying to get access to clear information, people started to mobilize. And this kind of culminated in 2011, March, April 2011, in a, in a strike, regional strike in Puno City. So Puno is a region, but there's also Puno City that's like the capital city of the region in which the rural population, with support from people from the city, kind of began a, a popular mobilization and strike that kind of ground the city to, to a halt for several weeks and kind of forced the government to rethink its plans for the, both for the Santa Ana mine and also for this kind of you know, so-called development in the broader region. And that was successful. The government overturned plans for the Santa Ana silver mine. That kind of set in train then the criminalisation of the indigenous leaders involved. That would be pretty unusual, wouldn't it, for the government to back down? Yeah, well, in this case, there were, like the, the mobilisation, I think it came at a time in Peruvian politics where there was, a, uh, there was an election coming up, I think it was quite strategic, like nobody wanted to be seen to either sort of blemish, you know, to have to repress further. There had already been violent repression of the protests locally, but to repress further the protests because the, the, the communities weren't standing down. You know, they were, it was their their livelihood, their water, their basic resources, their land, their water, their livelihood, for, which for indigenous and small farmer communities is, you know, it means the possibility of, basically a livelihood, they weren't standing down. And so the government was kind of backed into a corner where there was either, you know, even more violent repression just on the eve of a presidential election, you know, or, or stepping back and rethinking it. And in this case, they stepped back. But but that was just the beginning, really, because they kind of counterattacked with the whole, you know, a whole series of legal cases against the, the community leaders involved. And that's what the campaign that we're currently working on is focused on. How did they pick out the ones that they wanted to target? Because there were so many people involved in this struggle. Yeah, it's a good question. Initially, they began like legal proceedings or investigations into like 100 people. So I think they just kind of picked out people who they knew were community leaders. And this is an issue that we can kind of get into in a bit more detail when we talk about the upcoming court case. 
But what they did was select from the people who they knew were, were community leaders, you know, indigenous community leaders. And regardless of whether or not they actually had evidence of these people directly participating in any crime, but because of their role as community leaders, thought that they could bring charges against them for like being indirectly responsible for the protests. Legal proceedings or legal investigations began against 100 people, and then that was reduced down to 18, and formal charges were brought against 18 people. And then whenever it came down to the actual court hearings, it became really clear that there was no actual evidence against, against any of these people. But what happened at the last minute, there was this kind of turning point in the in the legal case where the judges in the regional court in Puno, they focused directly on one person who they claimed was kind of the ringleader of all of this. Like This is a region-wide protest and mass social mobilization, so I, I find it very hard to understand how they can narrow responsibility down to one person. But that's what they've tried to do. They focused on this Aymara indigenous spokesperson, Walter Adubiri. He's been convicted and he's been sentenced to seven years in prison and a two million soles fine, which is about 600,000 US dollars and a colossal amount of money in, in the context. So they, they really focused in on, on this guy, Walter Adubiri, and tried to pin responsibility for the protests more broadly on, on his shoulders. This is Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station, Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Thomas McDonough at the Bolivian Democracy Centre. And what was the reaction to that? So he appealed the sentence uh, straight away, and then, you know, there was uh, several months of back and forth, and, and then the regional court in Puno, basically they approved his sentence, like they denied his appeal, and he went into hiding where he remains. He's gone on now to appeal the case before the Supreme Court in in Lima, in the capital of Peru. Uh, And that's coming up in the next... We're we're expecting the the appeal hearing to take place in the next few weeks, hence the current campaign. Can you explain the connection between the legal system and Indigenous rights? Sure. Like we're obviously focused on this case of Walter Adubiri and you know the the legal case against him. But one of the reasons why we're particularly focused on his case is because it risks setting two legal precedents that are very dangerous and that will undermine uh, the broader kind of struggles of of indigenous people and another social movement struggles in in the country. In the hearings for the the Adubiri case two things happened. The first thing, he was initially, like together with uh, like the 18 other people who were charged, he had been charged not for being directly responsible for the protests and the damage caused during the protests, but he was charged with a degree of of participation known in Peruvian law as non-executive co-perpetration. That's like a, you know, a complicated legal term, but basically means that, you know, there were several people involved and they were kind of giving the orders to other people to go out and commit crimes. It's the basic idea. 
But then at the last minute, the judges, they acquitted the other defendants and they focused on Walter Adubiri as the only, as being solely responsible. And they convicted him based on another degree of participation called indirect perpetration in, in Peruvian laws called autoria mediata. That basically means that you're kind of the, you're the one single person, you know, behind the scenes, pulling all the strings and forcing people against their will to go out and commit crimes. That's the first precedent. So if the Supreme Court in Lima confirms the sentence against Walter Adubiri, it will be the first time that this degree of part participation or this, this type of charge is used against uh, uh, indigenous leaders in a, in a, in a social mobilization. And we feel that that would be a really serious precedent. And then the second thing is that whenever during the court hearings, Adubiri was also denied his indigenous identity. Like indigenous uh, community members, uh, you know, they are subject to the, the general law of the country, but also have a series of kind of rights uh, as members of indigenous communities, you know, related to uh, their cultural identity, related to their territory, territorial autonomy. One really important right is that to be informed and consulted about development projects uh, that would affect their, their territory. And these are all like recognized in the Peruvian legal system, in the constitution and, and in international treaties that Peru is a signatory to. Most importantly, the International Labour Organisations Convention 169. But in the case against Adubiri, one of the reasons that they used to deny him his, his, his indigenous rights was the fact that he had a, a university education and that he had uh, worked in different different jobs as a result of that university education. The condition, like what is supposed to determine whether or not somebody is subject to indigenous people's rights, is that person's, how the, that person identifies themselves. We're working closely with the, a human rights organization in Puno, and the lawyers there are, are sort of really concerned about this as a second precedent in this case. So we, we feel like there are two precedents on the line in the case. You know, the first one that these, like as I explained, this idea of being the person behind the scenes, pulling the strings and kind of obliging people against their will to commit a crime on the one hand. And on the other, uh, this issue of indi being denied indigenous rights because of, you know, in this case, uh, having an, a university education. And just to add in relation to the the first point, this precedent around, you know, being the person behind the scenes pulling the strings to understand the gravity of that as a precedent one just needs to take a look at the way it was used in the past. So in, in Peru, this indirect perpetrator was used in the past in cases against Alberto Fujimori, who's like the former Peruvian president, when he was uh, found guilty of crimes against humanity. It was also used uh, against the leader of the, the Shining Path, kind of guerrilla organization, you know, they're involved in the, in all of the, the armed conflict in Peru. So it was a leader involved in the armed conflict when thousands and thousands of people died. Those two people, like Alberto Fujimori and being sentenced for crimes against humanity and Abimael Guzman for uh, being the leader of uh, the Shining Path, the same legal charges 
are now being used in this case against an indigenous community leader for his involvement in a social mobilization uh, to defend their territory against a mining project. So that will give you a sense of the extreme, the extremes that the, the kind of criminalization of, of social protest has, has come to, uh, like represent really, represent really vividly in, in, the, in this case. Are there a great number of social protests in Peru and pretty good reasons why? Peru is it's one of the countries in Latin America with the most kind of mining projects. You know, there's a lot of mining going on in Peru, and, and the government's whole strategy is to expand the, the mining project. It's a big part of the economy. These minerals, that, you know, they're not found in in the middle of a desert, or you know, they're found in in rural communities. You know, there are a lot of social conflicts in Peru related to mining. And, you know, the expansion of mining projects into indigenous and farming communities and the threat that that represents for water sources and soil contamination and and people's health. And people have lost their lives defending their rights? Yeah, most definitely. In this, this same region of Puno, like so Puno is the region, as I said, it's got like the lake Titicaca to the north and uh, the Bolivian border to the south. But to the to the west, there's another region called Cusco that's quite famous um, because it's where the Incan ruins are. The Machu Picchu Incan ruins are in the region of Cusco, and it's a major tourism hub. Like Cusco is a is a region a bit like Puno. You know, there's the broader region, and then there's the capital city that have the same name. And in the broader broader region of of Cusco, there are also several mining projects. There have been some quite intense conflicts, communities organizing, protesting against you know, the impacts of mining on their health, on their families, on their water sources, on their animals. And in the most recent of those uprisings or social mobilizations in 2012, two people died in the resulting you know, conflict confrontation with the, with the police. That's in the broader context then of Latin America. Like Latin America is, is the most dangerous region in the world to be an environmental defender. I think the re- most recent report from an organization called Global Witness, they do these annual reports about you know, environmental defenders and the risks they face, and, and in particular documenting the deaths of environmental defenders being killed sort of in the line of, of action of defending you know, their water and their land. In 2017, uh, I think there were four people every week killed defending their resources and, and Latin America is, is, is the region of the world uh, most dangerous of all. Like the other the other thing to keep in mind with all of this is that we're focused on in this campaign is that, you know, criminalization takes many forms and like people have been killed while defending their basic resources, but that's kind of like the tip of the iceberg of a whole range of strategies to criminalize communities, you know, uh, to uh, isolate, weaken and marginalize the communities that stand up against uh, these extractive projects. One, in one of our recent conversations with uh, one of the local lawyers in Puno, you know, he described it as having three levels of criminalization. You know, the first is uh, policies and legislation, you know, that change, they change the legal system uh, and introduce, you know, these new ways new legislations that can be used to uh, attack people in the courts, basically, you know, drag people through the courts, 
so that they're bogged down for years defending themselves in the courts. Well, another level that he described was, you know, smear campaigns, people being labelled as anti-mining terrorists or environmental terrorists or, or as being anti-development. It's not the same for everybody in particular, like women in particular then face particular types of aggressive smear campaigns, you know, including what he described as sexual references and reference to, the, to their private lives. And so these kind of, you know, attacks in radio, television, online, on the internet, you know, smear campaigns, try to uh, blacken people's name um, is kind of another like layer and it doesn't affect everybody, you know, equally. He gave the example of, you know, women human rights defenders as as being, you know, affected differently and taking on different characteristics. Uh, and then the the way the state intervenes in the conflicts themselves, you know, one thing that's been happening in Peru been happening for a long time but it's kind of gotten worse in the last couple of years is like declaring states of emergency a conflict takes place or a, a protest takes place and the state reacts by declaring a state of emergency in the region that we're talking about in, in the south of peru in the andes in cusco and puno and around that region there were states of emergency for 10 consecutive months uh, between 2017 and 2018 so that's unprecedented in times of peace in the country. And, you know, it, and it implies a suspension of people's basic rights. This is all in the context of, of trying to facilitate, trying to pave the way for multinational corporations to have easier access to the natural resources of the region. So, you know, he described those three layers of criminalization, if you like. You know, first, the laws change the law. Second, you know, these smear campaigns, uh, labeling people as yeah, anti-mining terrorists or anti being anti-development. And third, then declaring states of emergency. And then in those situations of states of emergency, you know, people are getting killed and, and there's no real accountability for the police then for what in those situations. In the last two governments in Peru, there were 78 human rights defenders killed and of those 78 people killed, 67% of them died as a result of actions of the state forces during social protests. That's the context of the, of the Aymara community's mobilization. What's the agenda for the next court hearing? We don't have a date yet. We were expecting it to be in the next month. And there have been some, some developments, kind of like, these, uh, like a big corruption case uh, involving the Supreme Court in Peru. And it's, kind of, it's been delayed as a result of that. We estimate that it will be in the next month or two, one way or the other. So the campaign that we're in the middle of is working within that time frame. What are you asking the international community to do? Three things. The first thing is to just to pay attention and kind of get informed about this. And we, we feel that this is really emblematic of these dynamics, you know, in the broader region. That like it's an important case in and of itself, but it's also important in terms of you know raising awareness and educating people as to these dynamics, the actors involved, the role of multinational corporations uh, and international markets. Getting informed is the first thing that we would like people to do. The second thing, especially for people involved in um, in any kind of civil society organisation. We have a, an international sign-on letter that is circulating currently and will be for the next week approximately. 
uh, and we're looking for uh, organizations in particular to sign on to the letter in solidarity with the affected communities. We will be using that letter to pressure both the authorities and the courts in Lima just before the final court hearing, making the presence of international civil society felt in the case. In these situations, that can help people know that you know, there's uh, kind of the, the eyes of uh, international actors are, are on the case. That's the second thing. And then thirdly, Corporation in this case is called is is Bear Creek Mining, and the corporation in the case uh, in Cusco was uh, was Glencore. The third thing that I would, we would really encourage people to do, we really try to get better educated and informed about about the role of multinational corporations in these in these conflicts. You know, we use the the image of like a person behind the scenes pulling the strings, the way they're trying to portray these indigenous leaders. But the real actors behind the scenes pulling the strings are these multinational corporations and, and the impunity with which they, they act around the world. And I'm sure you, like your listeners are familiar with, you know, a lot of this. But like just to put it into perspective, you know, there's a, an organization in Europe that kind of, you know, documents the power and influence of, of multinational corporations. And one of the statistics that they co- have come up with is that of the 100 largest economies in the world, 40 are not governments, are not nation state governments, but multinational corporations. Uh, so of the 100 largest economies, 40 uh, our corporations. So we really need to, if we really want to, you know, if we're serious about, you know, when we talk about indigenous rights, if we're serious when we talk about climate change, if we're serious when we talk about, you know, protecting uh, our water and uh, for future generations, etc., we really need to shine a light uh, much more directly on the power and influence of multinational corporations. You know, this this case. Um, is is emblematic uh, of a lot of things. Uh, one of those is, the, you know, our as I mentioned at the start, this system of uh, trade and investment agreements that allows corporations to sue governments. So the, the corporation here, this the Bear Creek Mining Corporation, sued the Peruvian government uh, after the the uprising in uh, in Puno after the the protests in Puno. Um, so, you know, that whole system that allows that to happen, like that was a, uh, you know, a free, free trade agreement between Peru and Canada. You know, these, uh, free trade agreements that are presented to us as being all about, you know, job creation and, uh, and promoting investment. You know, that's not all there is to it. And this, uh, is a particular insidious aspect of those free trade agreements. Um, this system that allows multinational corporations to sue governments. And, you know, that's part of a kind of broader architecture, legal architecture um, of impunity that allows corporations to, to get away with, you know, with, with, what, uh, with, with what, what they do. Um, so, like, in that regard, um, there's a process at the... The UN Human Rights uh, Committee in, in Geneva has been underway now for for three years, maybe a little bit more, four years, um, to try to introduce a binding international treaty for multinational corporations with respect to human rights. 
um, so that would create, you know, an, a, a legally binding treaty um, for multinational corporations to be held responsible for their human rights uh, impacts. Uh, and those negotiations are ongoing. So, you know, uh, the Australian government uh, has a part to play, just like governments everywhere. So I think if there were a third thing uh, to ask of your listeners, it would be that, you know, to um, get better informed about the role and power of multinational corporations and, you know, shine a light into those kind of darker corners of what are uh, presented to us as being very positive uh, free trade agreements um, and, and and maybe uh, read up a little bit about the, the binding treaty uh at the U, at, at the UN on, on multinational corporations and, and the Australian government's position. And how to access that letter of support? The letter of support can be found on the Democracy Centre's website. It's just democracy and then ctr.org. So www. and then democracyctr.org. And you can access the letter of support there. Or just like, you know, do a Google search for the Democracy Centre and the I Marasso campaign. Just finally, Thomas, if Walter doesn't turn up to the court hearing, what's likely to happen? The concern is is not so much on whether he'll uh, show up to the court hearing. I think the concern is whether or not the Supreme Court in Lima takes on board the, the concerns being presented by the lawyers, and you know this would really it would really be. Uh, a very serious precedent uh, that would set back you know, all these struggles for indigenous community rights and uh, to defend the environment, to defend the water and the land. So I think that's kind of where our major concern is. And the local lawyers in in Puno, you know, have said that you know there are several breaches of international law here, and that if the Supreme Court upholds the sentence, Adubiri's sentence it may well mean that they will be, uh, you know, subject to proceedings in uh, the inter inter American human rights uh, system. So that would be kind of the next step uh, in terms of the the legal case. You've been listening to Thomas McDonough. He's from the Bolivian Democracy Centre in Bolivia, and I was speaking to him via Skype a couple of days ago. He's also involved with the International Alliance Allies. So it's very important, as Thomas has said, that um, more and more people sign that support letter to make sure that justice is served for the Indigenous peoples of Peru. So get onto their webpage. It's the Bolivian Democracy Centre, and I'm quite sure that you'll find the, the prompts to show you how to make sure that you sign that support letter and and actually, yes, support the people, the indigenous peoples of Peru who are fighting mining. And as he said, it's one of the countries in the world where the country's been rattled with mining for many, many years. And maybe it's time to stop because the people certainly don't get the benefits of it. That the most of their profits go overseas and they, they leave the mess behind. So that's the Bolivian Democracy Centre. And here... In Melbourne, it's 9.50, and this is Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. You could be listening on your old analogue, 8.55am. You could be listening digital 3CR, or you could be streaming 
that means that you're on the computer, 3cr.org.au, and you're hearing the program in real time, or you can listen to audio on demand, which means that you can listen to the program for up to a week, and then after that week, the next program comes on for a week, or you can do it more leisurely and have the program, not only this program, but many programs here on 3CR, podcast to you, so it goes straight to your computer each week, and you can listen at your leisure. And that number place again is 3cr.org.au. 3CR. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways, and they kill us, and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR. Bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 Great news to start this segment with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network, the court case in US where a cancer sufferer versus Monsanto has been awarded $289 million. Oh, well, there's a lot been happening, but yes, the judgment in Dwayne Johnson's case in California against Monsanto is really a groundbreaking news. Dwayne, unfortunately, is dying and uh, his case has come to court early, but a jury on Friday awarded him $289 million against Monsanto for his exposure to Roundup, uh, the weed killer, which has caused him to have um, a blood disease, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is, uh, as I said, terminal. Well, I presume Monsanto would appeal the judgment, but it was pretty comprehensive. Every juror agreed with all the points that the judge had asked, so I think it's um, a pretty strong result. It will have results not only in the USA but worldwide. We're already talking to lawyers here about the prospects of some non-Hodgkin's lymphoma sufferers, particularly farmers in Australia, perhaps taking the case here as well. Well, there'd be lots of other countries too, wouldn't there? Well, yes, I think so. This is the most used chemical worldwide uh, in agriculture for killing plants. Of course, a lot of people are exposed to it as a result of Monsanto's really shameless propaganda that uh, Roundup is so safe that you can drink it. When was it first produced or developed? It was first registered in 1974, so it's been used for a very, very long time. And now, of course, I think that as the thing has started to unravel, uh, Monsanto, of course, has also been taken over by Bayer. So I don't know how the payment of these um, judgments, if they stand up to further legal scrutiny, is actually going to be managed because Bayer, or its subsidiary, which I, I will be rebadged but remains Monsanto, how it will actually pay up. The Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority... What's been their position on Roundup up to now and what are you going to be asking them to do? They had a review in 2017 because um, the UN Cancer Committee, the IARC, so-called IARC Committee, found that 
Roundup is a probable human carcinogen or its active ingredient glyphosate is a, a probable human carcinogen. And of course that's given weight to um, Dwayne Johnson's case as well. And a lot of people have been doing a lot of work behind the scenes of course. Uh, we've just this last weekend had at the, um, the Bendigo Writers Festival Kerry Gillum who wrote a book called Whitewash published earlier this year uh, which really lays out all the evidence the evidence about the carcinogenicity and the toxicity of Roundup has been coming to light. A lot of the documents that were found in discovery during the trial and also as a result of the work of the US Right to Know organization in FOI, Freedom of Information, research over the last several years has led to this case being successful. Congratulations to their whole team, not just to the uh, winner on the day, of course. Let's just focus on Australia for a moment. Where is it used here and where is it sold? Well, it's sold everywhere. <laughs> um, every supermarket and um, hardware store has got Roundup. I can go into my local IGA, for instance, and there it is on the shelf in the gardening section, freely available. And the APVMO, I, of course, has said that um, provided people follow the label instructions, it will be safe to use. But the, the problem with the label instructions is that they don't include any safety instructions at all. Uh, no warnings about protecting yourself beyond a, a very timid and watery claim, you know, don't, don't leave this near children or some such. So really everybody's exposed. And we also see, of course, council workers around the streets, near kindergartens and schools and playgrounds, uh, spraying this stuff very liberally, both unprotected themselves, but also being pretty um, uh, cavalier when it comes to protecting the public. Of course, uh, companion animals are at risk as well. Dogs and cats around the streets uh, are also at risk of ingesting this stuff. So it's the most widely used, literally worldwide. Um, it's been Monsanto's cash cow since the 1970s. Enormously profitable because it costs virtually nothing to produce, but sells for a fairly hefty price. I think the important thing now is for local councils to get very serious about stopping the spraying around our suburbs and for farmers to start treating it much more respectfully because, of course, the the concentration of the products that's used on farms is much stronger than that which is sold in the supermarkets and hardwares and is used so commonly by a lot of people in their gardens and by councils on street sides. So there's going to be pressure on the, on the authority to reassess once more its view on Roundup. Well, I hope so. We're certainly um, planning to ask them again, but they already came out on the weekend saying we looked at that and we're convinced that our um, product is safe to use. It's going to take quite a lot, I think, for them to change. However, there are weak links in the chain, uh, like the supermarkets, I think, in particular. There's no reason that supermarkets should have a toxic poison uh, sitting out there on their shelves readily available for anybody to buy. And so uh, I think a word with Bunnings will be one of the first things to do. Also, the local councils, they've been warned uh, several years ago that um, continuing to use Roundup as they've been really does expose them. The insurance industry in particular, uh, once the judgment about the, um, from the UN committee 
confirming the carcinogenicity of this of this poison, the insurance industry came out quite clearly saying to them, you are legally exposed and you should do something about it. But it's only the rare council like the city of Yarra, for instance, that's taken any clear and firm stance and has moved on to other systems of weed control. Yarra um, has instituted a system of weed steamers and has got rid of uh, Roundup out of its um, weed management systems in the city. Are you contacting other councils as well? Well, we have done in the past. This is actually a campaign that we've been running for some 10 years now. We've certainly said to councils, how about it? And many of them have actually run trials. And a lot have then said, well, it's too time-consuming, it's too expensive, it's too much of a nuisance not to just spray everything, uh, particularly on rural roadsides where they can just go along with the sprayers on the side of the road and just um, spray out everything. Of course, part of the problem about that now is that uh, weeds have acquired Roundup resistance as a result of the spraying over all these years. And, of course, the genetically manipulated canola, which is now on many roadsides as well, is deliberately Roundup tolerant. It was made that way by genetic engineering in order that the farmers could spray more often and at higher doses with Roundup in their fields. They're now in the pickle of... um, having to use tank mixes of not only Roundup but other toxic chemicals as well uh, to manage the weeds on rural roadsides. So it's a very complicated picture. Councils have not been responsive. They've been in denial. As of farmers, we've just got to have a thorough review and it looks like the APVMA isn't the one to do it. Maybe we need some kind of citizens gathering in order to um, start to really come to grips with... uh, the toxics that are being sprayed into our environment, not only including Roundup, but a lot of other stuff as well. I'm thinking of what it does to the waterways when they spray around the creeks. Well, that is a problem, and indeed it was uh, quite clearly established again about a decade ago that uh, aquatic uh, organisms were being killed and rendered infertile and in other ways having their environment disrupted. uh, Monsanto brought out a... um, well, firstly, prohibited the use near waterways of uh, the conventional roundup, but by 10 metres or some fairly minimal distance, but then also brought out a special brand of roundup that they claimed was user-friendly for waterways and could be sprayed near creeks and rivers. The finding then was that the surfactant, because roundup is a, is a mixture of chemicals, the chemicals that spread the Uh, active ingredient, the glyphosate in the environment, were found, according to Monsanto, to be the ones that were were disrupting the rivers and creeks. And so they reformulated it and then um, started selling a formulation that they claimed would not cause the damage that had been so clearly established. But yes, the active ingredient can still wash into waterways. What its impact there is not clear, but it's still... I think an environmental and public health hazard that needs review. Australian authorities, state and local government especially, need to get their act together right now, review what uh, new evidence there is, and there's quite a lot of it as a result of uh, the Johnson case in the USA and the US right to know activities, and just um, get it out of our our food production systems where it can be used as a pre-harvest spray and leave residues in our food as well, and, and also uh, its use so widely in our environment. 
this case, are there other cases pending that you know of? Uh, that's Northern California. Well, yes, the, the, the lawyers in the USA have got literally thousands of other cases lined up. Uh, the problem there is that it won't probably be a class action because the, the circumstances of this case, which made it a winner, and the reason that um, people like Bobby Kennedy Jr., one of the Kennedy clan, got so strongly behind it as um, a litigation lawyer, uh, was that the evidence was so strong of the connection between Mr. Johnson's uh, illness and his use of the chemical. Uh, in other cases, it may differ, of course, according to how long the person's used it, under what circumstances and so on. So each, ju each judgment is going to probably have to be made on its merits. And it all still hing hinges on whether or not uh, an appeal in Johnson's case is successful for Monsanto or whether the judgment is sustained. And of course that could take some time to play out. We don't know yet what the result will be, but I think that it was so successful in this case at the first step that uh, I think we can be optimistic. As you've said before, because this case was brought forward because of his illness and likely short, shorter life, the appeal should be similar, brought well, forward. Well, we hope it will be expedited, of course, yes. Um, of course, I think now his family, who will be his survivors, are in a firm position to suppose that, that, that um, hopefully it will be successful and uh, going to a higher court, presumably, and that um, they will be compensated and that others will be compensated for their illness as well. But it's a bit like the asbestos in the James Hardy case. Monsanto has been working very diligently for a lot of years keeping these cases out of court and people have been dying before they could get a judgment. And uh, in the James Hardy asbestos case here right in, uh, in Australia, of course, we've seen that um, the same thing played out. It was only when Bernie Banton and a group of um, people who were suffering the illness, uh, mesothelioma, as a result of being exposed to, to uh, asbestos, that um, they finally managed to get a judgment. And then, of course, the government allowed the company to move itself overseas, uh, leaving some of its funds behind, which have proved totally inadequate to um, fulfil the, the needs of, of the people who have had, have continued to have judgments for their illness uh, made against the company. Companies have got lots of tricks up their sleeve. Let's hope that they don't duck out of it in uh, Johnson's case. Makes you wonder how some people sleep at night, doesn't it? Well, yes, of course, companies um, are people as well, or at least they're staffed by people. But um, I think we need to ask why legal entities like Monsanto or Bayer or James Hardy can, can behave as if they um, don't exist. And I think now we're starting to see that whole the whole assumption about the way that companies behave also come unraveled in the Banking Royal Commission and also in the Child Sexual Abuse Royal Commission where churches and corporations can be seen as having responsibilities. In law, they're treated as people, and yet they have none of the responsibilities of people, and that has to change. Uh, they've got very deep pockets, and some of the resources that are in those deep pockets need to be given uh, to the victims, whether it's of sexual abuse or um, of poisoning. The European Court of Justice has ruled that gene editing is GM. What are the consequences of that decision? Well, that's part of the picture of this whole corporate um, power and control being coming unravelled as well. 
uh, the new genetic manipulation techniques called CRISPR are being brought into the marketplace around the world. They're in laboratories. Uh, the scientists, of course, are extremely eager to um, use CRISPR to produce new genetically manipulated organisms, get them out into the, into the environment on farms, in uh, environmental management, into our food supply, and, of course, as um, human therapeutic instruments as well. CRISPR, this potent new genetic manipulation technology, has been evaluated in Europe, should it be regulated or not, and if regulated, on what basis. And the European Court of Justice has decided that, yes, the new CRISPR techniques are genetic manipulation, and, yes, they should be regulated. So that will have um, global consequences, we hope, because... Um, the Federal Health Department here in Australia, Food Stamps Australia New Zealand and the Office of Gene Technology Regulator have all got proposals in their pipelines saying that um, several of the CRISPR techniques are not strictly genetic manipulation and that they should be deregulated. This is before they've got a, any history of safe use and while the evidence is still unclear about their impacts, uh, we've been working very hard for the last two years uh, on making sure that CRISPR and the other genetic manipulation techniques will be regarded as the old ones were, as clearly genetic manipulation and will also be regulated here in Australia. And we're hopeful that the European Court of Justice decision will be influential in uh, bringing them to the point of view that um, we should have GM regulation continue in Australia as well uh, because I, I suppose the weightiest of our arguments from their point of view and from the government's point of view will be well if Europe requires everything to be regulated and labelled and we don't then we're probably not going to be able to continue to trade into Europe as we do at the moment particularly for our GM free products. It's not even up to what they claim it to be, is it? There's studies coming out showing there's large flaws. Well, yes, that's the other aspect of it, um, and I think that's the thing that uh, also will be very critical in this. Uh, we're drawing to the attention of our federal regulators all of the new evidence that's coming out about the off-target impacts of um, chopping uh, DNA using CRISPR techniques because what it's turned out, according to some new studies in Nature Medicine, is that um, you don't get the precise and accurate cutting of the genetic material that has always been claimed, that in fact um, you can make a cut, but then the cut doesn't stop. It starts chopping, so you've got chopped DNA instead of cut DNA. The process has to involve a repair as well, but if uh, these chops are occurring, then repairing it is going to be nigh impossible. And as well as that, it appears that when you cut the DNA at a particular spot, you also get c cuts at other places or off-target impacts in other parts of the very complicated genetic system that scientists somehow have over overlooked. Uh, they've been checking it out, but just last week in Nature, an Adelaide University professor, Paul Thomas, who's been working with mice and been trying to do the new so-called gene drive kind of CRISPR, which we could talk about further. Anyway, his latest work, which replicated some work done by other scientists overseas with human embryos, finds that in mice at least, the off-target effects are, are quite dramatic and the chopping 
effect also occurs in his mice DNA. So um, his team have turned up some pretty troubling findings that have been published and uh, we'll certainly be drawing those to the attention of our governments and saying to them, hang on a minute, <laughs> it's uh, a lot too early to deregulate as you propose and when you meet at the end of August in the so-called Legislative and Governance Forum on Gene Manipulation Technologies, you'd better have a very serious look at the evidence before you start deregulating things. And we're hopeful that our voice will be heard here in Australia. Is this research all happening in universities or is it private as well? Well, most of it is happening in universities that we know about and that's where the credible research is done. This is one of the problems with our whole regulatory system is that trustworthy corporations like Monsanto have been putting their research in as the most frequently used evidence when they make an application for the release of a new chemical or a new genetic manipulation technique. And our regulators are looking at the company's evidence and, in our view, downplaying or ignoring the independent advice of other scientists. And that has to change as well because, of course, the companies are notorious for fixing the evidence burying any evidence that's unfavourable to their case. And as a result, they're getting rubber stamps from our regulators for the safety of their synthetic toxic chemicals and also for their genetic manipulation techniques. And that has to stop. Our regulators have got to lift their game. They've got to get serious about using scientific, not pseudoscientific data and processes in order to... um, to judge on our behalf, on the public interest, what will be allowed and what won't. You know, they're our referees. They should be acting in the public interest, not in corporate interest, as far as we're concerned. But most of the time, our perception is that they're acting in the corporate interest and against the public interest. And that's really scandalous. Talk in a month's time, Bob. We will. And that, of course, was Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. The Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament presents Dr Joseph Gerson on Wednesday the 15th of August at 7pm. Dr Gerson's topic is How Nuclear Annihilation Stands in the Way of World Peace. August the 15th, 7pm, Melbourne Unitarian Church, 110 Grey Street, East Melbourne. All welcome. Sponsored by IPAN Victoria, Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church, Quakers, Pax Christi, Spirit of Eureka and the Victorian Council of Churches. The Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament is a 3CR supporter. Late yesterday, I spoke with Kathy Kelly, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and asked her first what was her reaction when she heard about the latest atrocity affecting the people of Yemen, particularly the children. Well, Jan, I felt such dismay. Um, the idea that children could ever be considered a target or uh, that it would be justifiable in any way to massacre children over the course of uh, this terrible war is is hugely unsettling. And and also here in the United States, you know, we're 
we as citizens of the United States, I believe, bear responsibility because the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates are, are purchasing weapons from the United States, and uh, these weapons are often being used in this war. Uh, the United States assists with choosing targets, and, of course, the United States helps to uh, refuel the warplanes when they go out and do these terrible strikes. And so I, I feel frustrated because it's so hard to educate the U.S. public about the clear, clear U.S. connection to and responsibility for this ongoing war. Can you explain the background to this war? The background of the Saudi and the Saudi-led coalition involvement goes back to March of 2015. Uh, prior to that time, a, a dictator, Ali Abdullah Saleh, had been ruling Yemen for 33 years until after the Arab Spring and after quite a lot of um, expressions of uh, grievance and, and, and great unhappiness over conditions in Yemen, uh, a, a group called the Gulf Corporation Council managed to persuade Ali Abdullah Saleh to step aside. And he said he would do that, more or less as a bloodless transition of power, but he insisted that his deputy minister, Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi, become the appointed president. So they had an election, but there was only one candidate, uh, Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi. No significant changes and reforms were made. It seemed really that the same old elite cronies that were hoarding Yemen's resources were still in charge. And meanwhile, the water table was going lower and lower, and gas prices were going higher. Unemployment was on the rise. Refugees were fleeing to cities that couldn't accommodate them. And so there, there came a point when a group of people called the Houthi decided that they had enough strength to basically take over Sana and send Abdurrahman Hadi packing, and, and, and they did. They took over Sana, And at that point, there was a, a lot of fighting going on, and the former dictator decided that he would align himself with the... Then in March of 2015... The Saudis decided that they would become involved in this war on the side of Abdurrahman Hadi, the exiled president who's basically living in Riyadh. Now, once that happened, they came in with their very superior air capacity for airstrikes and for causing tremendous carnage and damage. And they also used planes that they'd purchased, I'm sorry, ships big, huge Navy combat littoral ships that they'd purchased from the United States, and they blocked off the harbor area in the port of Hodeida. So at this point, Yemen is being subjected to almost like a state of siege. And then they also, in 2015, bombed a sewage and sanitation plant, and then days later, they bombed the electrical facility that fueled that plant. And so... The, the workers at that facility used diesel fuel to try to keep it going. It was such a necessary facility for sewage and sanitation, but they couldn't, and so the place shut down. And that was at a point when people were running away from other places being bombed in Yemen, and 
this was the beginning of the outbreak of cholera. Cholera that has affected an estimated one million people and could break out again. The background to the war is that the the Saudis and the Emiratis came in on this war using U.S. purchased weapons and U.S. support. The Saudi king, I'm sorry, Crown Prince, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman says that a long and protracted war is in their favor. Is it like some other places in the world, and I'm thinking of a couple of countries to the west of Yemen, it's their position in the world that ends up in a war like this because of the strategic position. Well, I think it is a very, very strategic position. The coastline of Yemen is valuable in terms of various ports, most particularly leading to the Bab al-Mandab, which is a very crucial waterway and control over that waterway is, is valuable and many countries would like to have that kind of control. But also a scholar named Issa Blumi, who works in Stockholm as a professor, has done a great deal of research. He wrote a book called Destroy, Destroying Yemen and he believes that the Saudis are actually anxious about becoming strapped for cash in the future and they want to be able to take over Yemen because in many ways Yemen is a gold mine for resources. It has oil reserves. It has natural gas. Um, of course, as you've mentioned, the strategic location could be very valuable. There's mineral wealth. And so it, it could be that the Saudis, even though they're spending uh, apparently $200 million a day on the war, see that expenditure as worthwhile if at some point they could take over the resources of Yemen. Looking to the present, what is being done about investigating this terrible crime? Well, I think it's very disappointing. The United States State Department issued a feeble statement saying that it hoped that the Saudis would carry on a thorough and a transparent report. But, you know, it's important to note that the Saudi king has already issued a decree saying that anyone in the Saudi military accused of any wrongdoing would be automatically absolved of any responsibility or um, consequences. And the idea that the Saudis would investigate themselves after they've already made statements saying that this was a legitimate target, even though they've certainly been the subject of a great deal of international scorn and indignation and anger. Nevertheless, it, it doesn't seem that the Saudis are likely to um, conclude that they were wrongful in making this attack. Um, they're saying that they were attacked in one of their southern cities and that this was a, a valid retaliation. Uh, but why would you... And then, of course, they've also tried to say that there were Houthi rebels on the bus. But certainly the idea that you can slaughter... Uh, they say now 40 children. Um, initially, we'd heard 29 children and wound uh, many dozens more, maiming them horribly. There, there's no justification for doing that. The United Nations was also not very strong. They said that they would like to see an independent investigation. But how is that to happen? You know, the, the Saudis won't let anybody into Yemen who isn't either working for the UN or for a group like Oxfam or International Commission of the Red Cross, groups that have been on the ground there for a long time. But I think it would be good if the United Nations undertook 
an investigation. So at, at this point, um, it is what, something that is unusual is that here in the United States, CNN, which is a fairly mainstream news outlet, has published video and very graphic pictures and quoted their senior correspondent, Name Albardi, uh, saying that it, this is the responsibility of the United States for supporting the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates. When you talk about the United Nations investigating, you've got to get through past the Security Council because you've got the US and UK who are supporting the Saudis and they're going to stymie any proper investigation, aren't they? Or does it have to go to another UN body to do this investigation? Well, we've certainly seen in the past that any Security Council resolutions that have been passed regarding Yemen haven't even named Saudi Arabia as one of the warring parties. There is now, uh, scheduled for September 6th, in Geneva, a negotiation meeting wherein it seems that um, parties to the war will all be represented. Uh, Martin Griffiths has been trying to arrange this kind of negotiation. But as far as investigation, you know, I, I, I do think that there are United Nations agencies in Yemen who have been speaking out um, with great shock and indignation in the past, including people working with the World Health Organization, the World Food Program, and UNICEF. It would be very, very valuable if somehow an independent group or a United Nations group could go to the site and try to see what kinds of fragments or remainders of the uh, missiles that hit the bus are present. There is one group of Yemenis who claim to have found parts of an, a 500-pound M82 bomb that's produced by General Dynamics, and they claim that, that, that those fragments were found at the site of the bombing, but I, I don't know that that's been corroborated by other groups. There is a Norwegian Refugee Council which is willing to investigate this, but again, would they be able to enter the country? That's the problem, isn't it? Well, it may be that the Norwegian Refugee Council already has some people on the ground in Yemen. If, if you can show that you've been working with a, a registered group, it is possible in Yemen for a long time. It is possible to board one of the flights into Sana'a, but it only goes. Those flights only go once from Amman and I believe once from Djibouti per week. And so, and, and the Saudis vet every single passenger on those planes. And if they aren't able to prove that they either work for the UN or one of these other organizations that are registered, then you can't get on the plane. I know this because uh, I tried many, many times to get a visa uh, and over the course of at least two, three months, really, and it simply wasn't possible to get in. What's happening with blockading the ports? Is that still on? Well, it's not as severe a blockade as the one that was imposed in November of 2017, but certainly the importation of desperately needed goods is slowed down significantly. The Saudis insist that the United Nations verification and inspection missions inspect every single boat that is bringing in supplies. And this can um, be a very laborious, slow process. And this is at the port of Hodeida. And the Hodeida airport is a place where uh, there, there still is some fighting going on. 
if her data becomes encircled by by fighting, then this will make it even more difficult for vehicles that are carrying desperately needed supplies to be able to get to the roads and travel out to various parts of Yemen. So it, it's it's not an ideal situation by any means. And, and the Houthis have said that they would be willing to see the port turned over to the United Nations, and the United Nations would basically run the port. But the Saudis were not willing to do that unless the Houthis made additional concessions in terms of leaving uh, the port city. What's the ability of people to get food in these times? There was talk of massive famine. Is that still the case? Well, they say that there are 8.3 million people kind of teetering on the brink of famine. What's happened now is that the, the unemployment is so high, the wages are so low, that people simply can't afford to buy food. So there, it's not that there isn't any food in the country, but people can't afford to buy it. So, again, humanitarian aid donations become very, very important, but that also requires, you know, trucks and fuel and the ability to transport needed aid. You talked about the weapons, and that's one of the, the big issues. There's not only that um, the U.S. and the U.K. governments are supporting the Saudi but there are also U.S. and U.K. companies who are benefiting greatly from this war. Well, that's certainly true. Um, I had mentioned General Dynamics and also Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed Martin have sold billions of dollars of weapons to the Saudis and, and Iraqis. But particularly, Saudi Arabia pays cash up front, and so it isn't like they have to wait a long time or... You know, there's, there are no loans involved. They're, they're very good customers for these companies. And, of course, these companies have huge lobbying capacity uh, that affects the United States Congress and the United States Senate. Uh, and they also have the approval of, of President Trump, who, in his very first international trip outside the United States, went to Saudi Arabia and literally danced with the princes. And, and much to our shame here in this country, when Crown Prince, and Mohammed bin Salman visited here in the United States. He was treated like royalty. He was met with, greeted by every former president of the United States. He uh, met with the celebrity Oprah Winfrey. People uh, in the showbiz business were very, very eager to meet with him because he says he's going to open up the possibility of having theaters in, in Riyadh and it was terrible that he was given such a warm reception, person who has orchestrated this war. Where does it go from here, Kathy? It can't continue surely like this, or can it? There are some elected officials in the United States who've expressed outrage over this last massacre of children. So I, I would expect that some new legislation might be introduced into the Senate and that the Congress people might um, push hard for another resolution that's already um, seeking additional co-sponsors to move forward. I think we, you know, we have to hope that uh, news media all around the world will continue to cover uh, the abuses that are happening. I mean, even in, on, on June 12th of this past year, a cholera treatment facility that um, Doctors Without Borders had built was completely destroyed uh, right after they had finished building it. that hadn't even opened yet through an airstrike. I mean, these kinds of airstrikes have affected the infrastructure, the 
civilian population's ability to get food, to get fresh fish, to get health care, to have sewage and sanitation. I mean, uh, you're right, it would seem it can't go on, but I am very chilled by the statement that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman made when he said a long, protracted war is in our favor. And this professor I mentioned, Issa Bloomy, says he thinks the purpose of the war is to bludgeon the Yemeni people into into complete submission so that their resources could more or less be extracted and stolen by other people. And you think it's not that many years ago that there were two Yemens? Well, that's true. And... Um, the two countries, South Yemen and uh, the rest of the country, were then unified. It, it's possible that um, the South would like to secede again. They've also been assured by the United Arab Emirates of support were, they, were, were there a party within the South that wanted to do that. There's a lot of um, wrangling over control of some very important port cities, including cities in the South. You'll be listening to Kathy Kelly, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. The concern that the Philippines is sliding further into dictatorship is growing with every week that passes. Since his coming to power, Duterte has plunged the Philippines into its worst human rights nightmare since the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos in the 70s and 80s. The deadly so-called war on drugs, which is really a war on the poor, extrajudicial killings, attacks on human rights defenders, violation of children's rights attacks on journalists and the media, deportation of a record number of foreigners last year over 1,500, and more recently attempt to deport Australian nun sister Patricia Fox. Now, retired Australian law professor Gil Boeinger, aged 84, is Duterte's latest target. He was detained on arrival at Manila last Tuesday and told he would be deported the next day. This morning I spoke with Peter Murphy, speaking today as the chairperson of Global Council, International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, and asked him what the latest news is. Gil Boeringer is a retired professor of law from Macquarie University, uh, was the dean of the School of Law there, still now active in the law as a member of the Permanent People's Tribunal. So he's still... uh, hearing cases to do with human rights in different parts of the world. And, uh, of course, he's got a lively interest in the Philippines. He's 84. He's really, I think, uh, exceptional in in that he's still very, very active. What happened on the 8th of August? Late on the night of the 7th, I think, he landed in Manila on his way down to Mindanao to see his wife. He was detained by the Bureau of Immigration and then... Early in the hours of uh, the 8th of August, he was told that he was on a blacklist and that he had to depart on the first available flight back to Australia on China Southern Airlines, which is the airline he used to to land there. Now it's the 14th of August and he's still in the uh, 
Terminal 1 at the Ninoy Aquino International Airport in Manila. Why have they blacklisted him? Out of conjecture because they're not really explaining much. The lawyers in uh, Manila have been pursuing the Bureau of Immigration for the basis for this blacklisting and they've received very little information. But verbally, he's been told that he took part in a protest against APEC in November 2015, which seems to be completely factually wrong. They seem to also pick up on the fact that he went to a school in Mindanao last year and... uh, that they didn't, they didn't like his presence there. They seemed to say it was a rally or something too, but uh, in fact it was just a group of visitors trying to understand what takes place in this school set up by an Indigenous community, mainly focused on agricultural education and, of course, literacy and numeracy education. It seems that uh, the truth of the matter is, just like Sister Patricia Fox, he's been picked out to be deported because he's a witness to really sustain the really serious human rights abuses taking place in, in Mindanao. His wife is in Mindanao? Yes, yeah, she's a worker in the school system that we're talking about, the LUMAD school system, um, and the particular one called Al-Kadev. She's a, an administrator there and worked in the system for about 20 years. So she's, she's actually well embedded in the, in the in the community and in the issue of uh, the repression of these schools that's been going on for several years now. They only got married last year and it's, uh, you know, really harsh that uh, uh, Gil hasn't been able to get down to Mindanao. Unfortunately, his wife was able to fly up to Manila and she's been able to uh, have a couple of days with Gil, uh, but there was one whole 24-hour period where like she went out of the airport to get medicine and then they wouldn't let her back in. But that's been overcome now. What's the conditions he's being held under? I think it's reasonably comfortable. He can eat at the different uh, restaurants and coffee shops in the airport. They were to sleep in a airport hotel room, but he's accompanied by a guard. Yeah, I, I would say the Gill's not complaining about the immediate physical condition. He's complaining that he's been detained. And uh, he, he's saying that there's no basis for this and he should be able to carry out his travel plan, which was to stay with his wife in Mindanao till October. This is all important because you know, they've been, been applying for a spouse visa for her to enter Australia and uh, some cohabitation and so on is very important in this. It's all being frustrated, I think, by this action by the Bureau of Immigration. I'd imagine that he's been travelling backwards and forwards to the Philippines for quite a while. Is this the first time something like this has happened? Yes, that's right. Since 2015, uh, he would have been in in the Philippines for many months and probably travelled four or five times. To me, it's amusing, you know, that now, it's only now that uh, this has happened. it's, It's very much an arbitrary action. Who's speaking out against it? Because I'm not in Manila, I haven't got a big feel for it, but the, the mainstream media, especially the Philippine Daily Inquirer and ABS-CBN TV News, have really been following uh, Gil's story. And as the days have dragged on, it's become more and more like that movie called Airport with Tom Hanks stuck forever in limbo. So I think it's a bit captured the imagination of people in uh, the Philippines. I think the... Uh, the reaction, the emotional reaction is one of, you know, shame that um, the government of the Philippines would be treating an 84-year-old professor of law like this. It's a sort of an embarrassment.
that this is happening. So there is pressure, certainly, of course, the human rights fraternity uh, community in, in uh, Manila, the lawyers, uh, but also from the media and more generally uh, that this shouldn't be happening. What about the Permanent People's Tribunal and perhaps Macquarie University? Have you heard anything? The Permanent People's Tribunal has issued a statement calling for this blacklisting to be dropped. In Australia, we have many organisations which are concerned about the Philippines who have uh, sent similar messages. The, you know, the Philippines-Australia Union Link, we have the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, Philippine Women's Organisation, Migrante, which is the general community organisation of Filipinos here, Action for Peace and Development in the Philippines, which is more of a cross-community, Australian-born people in it. And in, in these organisations, we've got quite a lot of trade unions and church organisations involved. So it's, you know, people are very aware of it. And, and I think you could say that the Australian government itself, while it sticks to its line that it cannot interfere in the decisions of other countries about who enters and leaves them, has been very, very supportive of Gil um, in terms of the medical assessments and uh, not being rushed back onto a plane where his health could be really be endangered. I think our government has played a relatively good role as well in, in dealing with this challenge. And of course he's not the first foreigner to be deported in recent times. I think, uh, well we've got Sister Patricia Fox's case and she hasn't been deported yet. No, and well, he uh, hasn't either, well. has he? That, that's right. There's been other people from Europe and uh, even a lawyer I know, a prominent lawyer from the United States was deported a few years ago. So it, it does happen and it is happening more in, in this last day, five or six months. I myself travelled to the Philippines in February and uh, I was challenged at the airport when I arrived but I wasn't allowed to enter and I had no trouble when I left. But other people who took part in the international solidarity mission I was on, they were eventually, um, some of them were detained and uh, questioned for a couple of days before being deported. They were Filipino-American women from uh, New York. So even in February, there was something going on. And it was this uh, Fox who went to Mindanao just in the next month, March, April, that uh, triggered the action against her and, and the deportation action against her began in April. Yeah, I would say 2018 has been a, a different type of year and uh, one causing a lot of concern. Well, also the fact that um, he's trying to, or the government's trying to keep people away from what is actually ha happening in Mindanao. Yes, I think that that's clearly uh, their intention. It's hard for them to do it because there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people willing to travel uh, to the Philippines and take part in investigation-type trips and to report back what they see. The government can sort of catch up with them afterwards and maybe stop them coming back again, but, but no, they can't stop this pressure. And the farmers' organisations and women's organisations and church organisations in the Philippines, and particularly Mindanao, are very, very anxious to continue to invite people to come. Of course, they're very uh, anxious that, that people who come aren't victimised like this, causing a lot of reassessments all the time of, of how to manage things and what to do. But overall, Filipino organisations want to you know, confront this challenge and not be intimidated by it. And we can hope that Gil's health remains and that soon he'll either be home or be back with his wife. Yes, I'm, I'm trying to follow it. And the information this morning is that China Southern Airlines, which is the airline that must take him out, refusing to let him board 
unless there's a certificate from a doctor confirming that he's safe to travel in terms of possible deep vein thrombosis. This certificate isn't there. So it's a standoff. The Bureau of Immigration is demanding that they take him and they're saying, no, he won't be boarding. <laughs> he's a bit, I think it'd be news, but getting a little annoyed now that uh, it's like a catch-22 situation and it's a bureaucratic game and he's the ping-pong ball now. Um, it's unclear to me whether he would be put on a flight today. But yesterday evening, I, I was informed that I should expect him to be flying at about 11.55 a.m. Philippine Manila time and landing in Australia tomorrow morning at 8.25. But that may not happen now. So uh, I'll wait to see what other information comes today. Does his wife have permission to come to Australia at the moment? No, she, she doesn't have a visa. No, okay. she doesn't have a visa. It's a distressful thing for them. If he can't visit her and she can't visit him, what's, what's really going on? You know, it, it seems extremely harsh and uh, nothing to do with all of the so-called family values that every one of these governments claims they uphold. Okay, something to watch, Peter. Yes, Jan. Thank you. And it's thanks to human rights activist in Sydney, Peter Murphy. Today and next week, I look at the history and present situation of Nauru, where this year's Pacific Islands Forum will be held in September. I'm speaking with Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher. During the Second World War, the people of Nauru suffered terribly um, with the Japanese occupation of the islands. Uh, right through Micronesia, Japan sent military forces uh, uh, through islands, uh, not just Nauru, but also through uh, the, what's today the Caroline Islands uh, and the Marshall Islands. Japanese influence came after the First World War, but uh, the islands were a real battleground throughout Micronesia as the American troops fought their way through. For the people of Nauru, there was a massive loss of population, uh, incredible human rights abuses. But the post-war period created new contradictions. You know, Nauru had really been used for phosphate mining, you know, and the it's a small island and the central plateaus of the of the island were being dug up through the British Phosphate Corporation. So Britain, Australia, New Zealand were, were very much involved in this. And after the Second World War, Britain particularly was eager to maintain phosphate mining, not only in Nauru, but also in Banaba, which was known as Ocean Islands, part of the British Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony. It's today the Independent Republic of Kiribati. So Banaba and Nauru were both, uh, you know, really mined out, and this crucial resource was vital for agriculture. And so in Australia and New Zealand, superphosphate was a, a crucial part of Australia's pastoral industry, dairy industry, um, improving uh, arid lands within Australia. Nauru, you know, suffered the consequences of this mining, where basically the guts of the central part of the island were mined out, leaving a, a forest of coral pinnacles um, with the, the, the phosphate taken from around it. You know, that environmental disaster remains to this very day. Did the Nauruans have any say in this? Well, Nauru, you know, campaigned for better conditions and indeed, uh, you know, Nauru was one of the first countries to move out of UN trusteeship, to move towards independence. This year, 2018, is the 50th anniversary of Nauru's independence and Hamid Robert, the then leader, um, was a, a crucial figure in campaigning for a better deal for Nauruans. And Nauru uh, was one of the four founding island nations in the uh, what was then the South Pacific Forum, 
Um, so this year they're hosting the Pacific Islands Forum, which is the, the renamed body. Nauru, uh, you know, began to take control of this process and set up trust funds where the revenues from phosphate mining could be uh, used and uh, led to a series of real estate investments, particularly in Australia, but elsewhere as well, um, setting up an airline. And during the 1970s, Nauru per capita was one of the richest countries in the world. Um, there was, for a country at that time of, uh, you know, less than 10,000 people, um, there were significant revenues coming in. And so older Melburnians will know of Nauru House in Collins Street, which was owned by the Nauru government and was really the flagship for their relationship with Australia in a post-colonial period after, after independence. But um, through the 70s and 80s, there was a, a, a series of problems with those revenue streams. And as the phosphate began to run down, particularly in the 1980s, there were real problems about this. And in 1988, Australia was taken before the International Court of Justice uh, by the Nauru people, claiming compensation for um, the damage that had been done by phosphate mining and the failure of the administering power, Australia as an administering power, to um, do that. So the Nauruans sought from the ICJ a declaration that Australia was responsible for the environmental and social damage suffered while it administered the United Nations trusteeship. You know, the UN created trusteeships in many parts of the world after the Second World War, and the administering powers were supposed to look towards the social, economic, cultural development of the people under their colonial rule. Why Australia? Well, Australia had been um, part of the victorious alliance against uh, the Japanese, and as the uh, Americans fought their way through um, uh, the islands, they took control of uh, islands in the northern Pacific, like the Marshall Islands, the Caroline Islands, Palauan Islands, but places in the south that had been historically British or Australian-New Zealand colonies uh, returned to uh, to that control, and so Australia took over. And so the Nauruans looked to Australia as the administering power. This 1988 court case went forward. There's a wonderful book by Justice uh, Wiramantri, um, who is uh, an Australian judge, uh, who looked at the... Uh, the enormous damage done to Nauru during this period of, uh, of mining. And in 1993, there was a, a compact of settlement, an agreement between Australia and Nauru, and Australia agreed to provide a one-off payment of about $57 million and then to provide uh, another $2.5 million a year in, in compensation. And they set up a, a rehabilitation scheme and so on. And so, basically, it was about $100 million bucks committed as part of this settlement in 1993. Um, but by that stage, the, the phosphate was running out. And also, through a range of mismanagement, through economic difficulties, uh, the uh, Asian economic crisis in 1998, uh, Nauru hit the wall financially. And um, uh, through, you know, ill-judged uh, investments uh, like a... Uh, bankrolling a West End play in London about Leonardo da Vinci uh, through Air Nauru, which was, uh, you know, had very limited patronage but was flying around, you know, the Central Pacific and indeed to Asia and lost a lot of money through their property portfolio. The Nauruans entered a financial crunch at the end of the 20th century. And this was, of course, the time that through the Tampa crisis and subsequent crises around asylum seekers and refugees in Australia, that the Australian government went looking for 
an offshore location where they could warehouse asylum seekers. And uh, then Foreign Minister Alexander Downer approached a whole range of countries in uh, 2001. You know, obscenely, Australia went to Timor. This was, you know, two years after Timor's independence referendum, before Timor even became an independent country. Australian diplomats approached the, the Timorese leadership asking whether they would take asylum seekers and refugees. And the Timorese said, stuff off. You know, smaller countries like Kiribati and uh, Tuvalu were approached by uh, Susan Boyd, the then Australian High Commissioner in Fiji, as to whether they take asylum seekers. But the only two countries that ended up taking asylum seekers under what Howard dubbed the Pacific Solution, eerie words when one thinks about the final solution, they were Australia's former colonies, Nauru and Papua New Guinea. And as we know, between uh, 2001-2007, Australia warehoused thousands of people um, in detention centres on Nauru and on Manus. And uh, it caused real problems at that time, uh, particularly for people in Nauru. It's a very small country, very limited resources, a very poor infrastructure around things like electricity generation, around water supply, particularly water supply in this age of climate change. And so it was an enormous burden. And Australian taxpayers footed, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for what was dubbed the Pacific Solution, but as we know, was not a solution. The core problem the Howard government faced was that no third country uh, beyond New Zealand at the beginning would take these people once they were found to be refugees. Countries like Canada and Scandinavian countries, the United States and others said, hang on, we're already taking refugees um, from camps in a number of countries. Why should we take people that are, that are you know, Australia's responsibility? And so after, you know, then Immigration Minister Philip Ruddock fought for years to stop refugees coming to Australia, he was replaced um, by Amanda Vanstone and she quietly began letting in the remaining refugees on um, on Nauru and Manus. By the end of the Howard government, about 40% of people who'd been found to be refugees ended up in Australia. New Zealand took a, a big bunch right at the beginning from the Tampa and other, other boats that had arrived at that time. A small number went to places like Canada, uh, Norway, uh, Sweden, but they were people basically who had family reunion, who already had family in those countries and were willing to go and link up with their family. So only about 3% of people who were processed and found to be refugees during Pacific Solution Mark I, during the Howard years, only about 3% of people went to third countries because most developed countries said, why the hell are we taking stuff from Australia? You know, it ended in the farcical situation where in the final late years of the Howard years, there were just three people. One guy, Al-Adam Sasselam, a stateless person, Palestinian, uh, originally born in Kuwait, living on Manus by himself. The camp was run for Aladdin and his cat for about eight months. He was I the only a, person there. I have a photo of him with his cat. Yeah, it's, it's a, a crazy, crazy story. And there were two um, people um, on uh, Nauru, uh, Mohammed Faisal and Mohammed Sagar. Uh, who'd both been given adverse uh, security uh, rulings by ASIO. They'd been found to be refugees. They'd been found to have the need for protection. They couldn't return to their home country, but ASIO, for various reasons, um, refused to give them security clearance, and so they sat there. One of those men went crazy, literally, and the Narrowans finally said, we can't, we don't have the medical facilities, we don't have the psychiatrists, we don't have the people to care for this man. And ASIO went and did a new survey and suddenly discovered that they were no longer security threats and those two final people 
on Nauru were brought to Australia. And it was a scandal that Australia wasted tens of thousands of person hours, millions, tens of millions of dollars, and the lives of many people in this policy folly. Fast forward, as we all know, the Rudd government, the Gillard government, crumbled against the uh, Stop the Boats assault from uh, the uh, Tony Abbott and the, the uh, coalition, and the camps were reopened again in 2012. Once again, we're living with the foreseeable consequences that the warehousing of people overseas is um, causing enormous problems. Uh, and despite the fact that the United States has agreed to take uh, up to 1,250 people, that process is moving very slowly, and there's clearly hundreds of people who won't be taken by the United States, for example, a number of Iranians uh, that the Americans refuse to touch because of their current uh, contretemps with, uh, with the regime in Iran. And so, you know, we're going to see playing out this disaster till the end of the, the Turnbull government. And the relations between the governments of Nauru and Australia and also the people of Nauru. Well, it's always been a pretty fraught relationship. One of the big changes with Pacific Solution Mark II, you know, under the Labor and, and Abbott Turnbull governments, has been that Nauru was pushed in 2012 into signing a whole range of international conventions, particularly around uh, um, anti-terrorism laws and money laundering, because one of the great concerns from Australia was that um, uh, Nauru was involved in post office banking and uh, niche, you know, tax haven banking and so on, um, which might be used by the Russian mafia or alleged terrorists and so on. But Nauru also signed the Refugee Convention, one of the great scandals of the Howard era was that Nauru had not signed the Refugee Convention, had not taken on the obligations that all state parties take when they sign the Refugee Convention to provide protection for people. That's what refugee status is all about, to provide protection for people who are fleeing persecution because of sex or race or religion, ethnicity. And Nauru's now taken on that obligation and that's one of the shameful things about Australian policy is that they've now fobbed off the responsibility onto Nauru and you only have to listen to Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton where he says, oh, Nauru's a sovereign country, we can't tell them what to do. You know, they're responsible as a signatory to the Refugee Convention now for the people who are living on Nauruan territory. And so we're still paying all the bills. We're still very influential in the, the process around this, but... Nauru is ultimately legally responsible as a signatory of the Refugee Convention. And um, I fear that the Australian government is going to walk away when we get down to the dribs and drabs like we did last time when, you know, the hard cases of stateless people, of people with mental illness, of people with security problems, um, of people who've been refused asylum status, a refugee status. Australia's just going to walk away and say, Nauru's problem, not ours. So that's causing a lot of tension. And at the same time, Nauru uses Australia's uh, paranoia about boat people to leverage political gain, obviously to leverage financial gain, and, you know, to play out domestic politics and get Australians to pay the bills. And Australian taxpayers are doing that to the cost of hundreds of millions of dollars for a relatively small number of asylum seekers and refugees when you look at the global flows of displaced people. But the Nauruans are also showing their displeasure in different ways. It's sometimes a mistake from, from the refugee movement in Australia, the refugee solidarity movement, to present the Nauru government as simply pawns of Australia. 
I mean, Nauru has its own foreign policy and indeed on many issues uh, is actively going against Australian foreign policy in regional matters. And in fact, one of the problems for Australia is although they're paying the bills and although they're driving a lot of stuff, they can't control the Nauruan government simply because Nauru might say, all right, well, let's shut this down. <laughs> it's the ultimate threat that Nauru's got is to say, we, we no longer want to go on with this. And that would cause a huge domestic crisis, be it for a coalition government or a Labor government in Australia, if the Nauruans tried to, to pull the plug. So you see on foreign policy issues, say, West Papua, Nauru has been actively supporting the United Liberation Movement of West Papua within regional bodies like the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, Nauru was one of the three countries that supported French Polynesia to be reinscribed with the United Nations list of non-self-governing territories um, and so uh, supporting the uh, Maui independence movement in French Polynesia, which goes against Australia's policy. You'll know uh, Prime Minister Zermbel hosted French President Macron in May and, you know, we're all the way with Macron and uh, French colonialism in the region. So Nauru, however, has joined with the Pacific Islands consensus to support uh, French Polynesia. And that is Nick McClellan, and on the program next week, we'll be hearing more from Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher, about Nauru, past, present, and possibly the future. But that's all for me for today. I will be back next week at 4 o'clock. Done by law coming up. Bye for now. <laughs> 